0: and I'm sure there's a big debate about this, uh, maybe even you and I might even debate it, um, but we do believe that most companies, not all companies, but most companies you know, perform better when people are in the office, when they have a chance to collaborate and brainstorm ideas and go in and out of each other's offices when they need to. In general, the sector has a place. That being said, There is a lot, a lot of functionally obsolescent office buildings out there. And I'm pleased when I read about and I hear about that talk about some of that stock being converted into residential. I mean, in my opinion, that's a win-win situation because, you know, we do need more housing and we need more affordable housing and hopefully that that can help with it.
1: Hi, this is Matt Slepin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview, recorded on February 22nd, is with Jordan Sloan, the Chairman and CEO of Harbor Group International, a $20 billion AUM real estate asset manager. They're a major owner of apartments, they own and operate about 58,000 units and are 15th on last year's NMHC top 50 list of apartment owners, but they also own and operate commercial properties and have debt investments across the real estate spectrum. Their starting core has always been in the apartment business, and they've always approached their business from the bottom up in terms of strategy and perspective. The firm's success and growth has been significant. Jordan and I talk through both sides of the business, splitting the conversation between transaction and investment stuff and business platform stuff. Their transaction volume and savvy is impressive, as is their ability to raise, deploy, and manage capital for their largely ultra high net worth investor base. The transaction talk is easy and the measuring stick that we all love to use in the real estate business. But to talk about people, culture, business intelligence, work from home, and overall business platform is harder to put a finger on, but as you will hear from Jordan, the passion, the staying power, and the secret sauce to their growth. As recruiters, we think about business platform all the time. And most business leaders I know are always talking about culture, especially what a wonderful and strong culture they set up in their firm. To me, the topics of culture and platform are too often conflated. Platform is fairly objective and something you can evaluate as you distinguish between companies. Culture is more elusive and subjective, and instead of thinking simply good culture versus not so good culture, we might need to talk instead about the type of culture. ZRG has two consulting arms, Brimstone, a management consultant, and the other a firm called Walking the Talk, which is a culture advisory firm. I heard a great presentation from the Walking the Talk leaders at the ZRG annual meeting a few weeks ago that described the different paradigms of business cultures and ways that we're able to help companies enhance their performance by aligning their culture with their business strategy. It takes the concepts we talk about but have trouble putting our fingers on and moves it into the world of actionable change. You can check out Walking the Talk via the ZRG website. Or you can read the book, aptly named Walking the Talk by the company's founder, Carolyn Taylor, on Amazon. I hope that you're enjoying the show. As always, if you have not already, please follow us or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you have a few minutes, please rate the show. You can find the archive on your podcast app or on our website at crgpartners.com leadingvoices where you can link to all the episodes and cut and paste to share with a friend. Feel free to contact me if you have comments about the episode or the show generally or guest ideas, or if you want to get in touch for search or other talent advisory for your business. My email is mslepin at crgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Jordan Sloan. Well, Jordan Sloan, thank you for being on the show and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Uh,
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Cool. It's wonderful. So one thing we're doing on Leading Voices this year, we're going to try to do is group our podcast. So the last conversation was with an institutional investment manager as well, a guy named Chris Merrill from Harrison Street, which will contrast a ton with our conversation because Chris only does niche sectors and you're in the main food groups, particularly of office and multifamily as as your headline. And so I want to dive all into your business and understand what is to have a vertically integrated company. And- uh, lots to talk about today. So just give us, for listeners, the headline of your company and just the overview of things, and then we're going to dive into all parts of the business. But kind of what, what's your elevator speech?
0: Yeah, elevator speech is I started the company in 1985, originally just doing property management of apartments. Uh, we started acquiring assets, uh, what I would call investment-grade assets, in 1991, Over the years, uh, multifamily has really been our main asset class, although we've done a few others, and we can talk about that in a little while. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we are, I think, presently ranked uh, amongst the top 15 apartment owners in the United States. And I think if you strip out the public companies that would put us at somewhere in the top five, we also have a very robust what we call debt platform. We make whole loans. We have a debt fund. We also make uh, mezzanine loans, preferred equity, as well as uh, have been one of the largest buyers of Freddie Mac bonds in the United States over the last uh, seven to eight years. So uh, today, the company is about $20 billion in assets under management. The majority, significant majority of that is in the United States. We do have some assets, a small portfolio of properties in the UK as well.
1: Got it. And, and overall, you said uh, AUM is about $20 billion? That's correct.
0: 80% of that is is related to multifamily or housing.
1: Okay. And you're based in Norfolk, Virginia.
0: We are. We're based in Norfolk, Virginia. I went into the business uh, after getting out of a family business uh, that had nothing to do with real estate. And so uh, Norfolk has been a good place for Harbor Group to start. There's been a few challenges, uh, you know, along the way. We can talk about that in terms of being in a, in a, in a smaller city like Norfolk. But uh, overall, it's worked out well for us.
1: Wonderful. And talk about what your fun vehicles are. Do you have multiple concurrent vehicles open and closed in? What's that look like?
0: So we have two fun vehicles. Um, That's not the only way we raise equity, but in terms of actual formal funds, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: we have two fund vehicles, they're both closed in. One of them is a fund that we actually do every year, believe it or not, for individual uh, high net worth investors that invest through the fund. And the fund takes a small slice of every investment that we do. Mm -hmm. Um, As an example, this past year, We deployed $2.5 billion of equity in different investments. Our fund was about 13% of that. Our fund was uh, approximately $340 million. So on average, it's somewhere between 10 and 15% of every transaction that we do. Mm -hmm. Our fund will invest a piece of the equity alongside institutional investors, uh, family offices, wealth managers, et cetera. The second fund that we have, which is also a closed-end fund, is we do have a credit fund. It's a very recent fund. We raised uh, approximately $1.7 billion for our credit fund. It's mostly institutional investors that are in that fund. And that credit fund, its investments are limited to multifamily in the credit space. So everything from whole loans preferred equity, mm-hmm. mezzanine loans, as well as uh, buying mortgage bonds, not just Freddie Mac mortgage bonds, but we also buy uh, CLO mortgage bonds and we can buy CMBS mortgage bonds as well. But our fund that we do every year is for individual high net worth investors. Uh, we call it our opportunity fund. And again, it's it just a way for individual investors to participate and all the transactions that harbor group uh, is going to do over a 12 month period of time
1: and then the ind- uh, we won't spend too much t- more time on on how you're capitalized but I'm just curious the therefore individual transactions or large transactions are done with programmatic equity that you bring in an equity for a deal
0: that's right I, you know I always tell investors if you're if you call me up and you say you know Jordan bring me a really good deal. Don't just bring me a regular deal that Harbor Group's doing. And just I only want to see the really really good ones. And I you know I, I won't say I'll hang up the phone on that invest yeah. on that person, but I would tell them that they're not for us because first of all everything that we do, we think is a really good uh, investment or else we wouldn't uh, be looking to do it in the first place. But it's it really as you mentioned it, it's programmatic. So uh if it's not through Um, Our opportunity fund or credit fund, even some of the family offices and wealth managers, we have uh, programmatic relationships. So we know exactly what they're looking for and what kind of uh, approximately what kind of allocation that they will have into the investments that we're making.
1: Uh And and last year you did $2.5 billion. Is that of your equity?
0: That's actually equity that we deployed Uh, altogether, we did over $7 billion in total transactions. That includes uh, new investments as well as dispositions. It was actually a huge year for us on the disposition side. We sold or had realizations of about $2.4 billion of our portfolio in 2022. But the number that I mentioned in terms of the equity deployed, the 2.5 billion is just equity deployed.
1: Wow, and and so talk about last year. Talk about the first half of last year and the second half of last year, which could have been different to some degree. And then talk about this year and your prognosis because transaction volume is way down this year.
0: So let me start by saying talking about the dispositions mm-hmm. because what happened is that at the beginning of two thousand and twenty-two, right. and at the actually I'll even go as far as to say at the end of two thousand twenty-one, we who have a history of buying large portfolios, we were getting outbid by some of our larger competitors. In some cases, we were getting outbid by as much as 15, 20%. And so we decided that we'd look at putting together a big portfolio and put it on the market and hopefully sell it in one fell swoop to one of the more, you know active buyers at the time. Then it came the end of January. The market was, there was a lot of chatter about inflation, interest rates. And, the, and some of the brokers who we'd been talking to about handling this big portfolio started backpedaling a little bit. And then the situation in the Ukraine happened. We then decided, and I mean, when I say quickly, I mean quickly. We decided to not put a big portfolio, but rather break it up into single assets or very, very small portfolios. And we told the brokers rush these assets to market, skip the whole, you know, taking 30 days to put together a big, beautiful package, just put together a mini package, get it to the, you know, five to 10 most likely buyers. And uh, we want all contracts to come in with a non-refundable deposits um, in order for them to be considered. And by May, of 2022 we had 1.8 billion dollars of properties under contract to be sold in again not in one big portfolio but in uh single assets or twos and threes or four four property packages so that was really we were we were fortunate to have timed that right, what I would call kind of peak of the market. Mm -hmm. And then we had some additional sales throughout the year, and I'll talk about 2023 in a second, because I'm actually quite surprised that there's still, even though you're right, transaction activity has slowed down a lot, but there's still transactions taking place. On the acquisition side, we have done what we've always done, which is look at Things and this is my this is my uh, motto, so to speak, uh-huh. which is Harbor Group buys the things that others either can't do or they don't want to do. So that means either big transactions, it means complicated transactions. You know, we bought last year Parkline Miami, a big deal, four hundred thirty-five million dollar transaction. This is a new property built over the new Brightline Rail Station, which is the central train for uh, not only Miami, but this train's going to run throughout Florida, both north and south, and even go all the way to Tampa. But there's retail. There's a food court. We didn't buy the retail. We didn't buy the food court. We obviously didn't buy the train station, but Mm -hmm. it was called a vertical subdivision. I mean, it was... It, it was very complicated. There were even even things in terms in there that, that I had never heard about uh, before and learned a lot and our our transactions group and our legal team did a great job. but that's a great example of something that a lot of investors would stay away from something like that. Also loan assumptions, people don't like loan assumptions, particularly if it's low leverage, we will do that kind of deal. So for 2022, we focused, at particularly the, the, the first half, we focused on, again, what we've done for many, many years, which is the very large transactions, complicated transactions, sometimes large and complicated uh-huh. transactions. Uh-huh. In the second half of 2022, as the market changed, then we became certainly not the only ones, but you know one of the go-to firms that brokers would come to when sellers were looking to sell properties without having a hiccup. So somebody that had a certain time frame, they needed to move fast and they, they would bring the deal to us. They knew that we could get it done. They knew we had the financial resources to, to be able to transact and also the human resources in, in order to get things done quickly. I mean, there was, uh, I guess the best example would be right at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Right at the end of the year, there was a transaction that was owned by a South American public company who had to have a year-end closing. We first heard about the transaction in mid-November. We put it under contract at the end of November, and we closed the transaction on December 30th. So... It was uh, from start to finish. I mean, literally from the time we even heard about this till the time we closed was like 45 days. So those are the types of things we did on the on the acquisitions front in this in the second half of, of 2022.
1: I want to unpack some of the things that you said that I, that I don't fully understand or I want to think of the meaning of it. So first of all, when I think of a group that has their uh, their fund, but they're also using programmatic equity, it's harder to move fast because you have a third party you have to bring in or not.
0: The whole idea of the term programmatic means that the investor has already given us authority to move forward with a defined transaction that has certain parameters. So we can move with lightning speed, even though some of the equity is not coming from a fund Mm -hmm. because these investors have agreed that as long as the the investment was within you know certain parameters that we could count on them and we, you know we have some some of the largest family offices in the world that invest with us wealth managers that do so through a programmatic relationship
1: so those programmatic relationships are multiple and deep and yes, they are. And, yes, and they are. Let's unpack another thing that you talked about which is in the first half of the year when you sold that portfolio. I've always been told that there's a premium for portfolios. You left the premium for portfolios because maybe bite-sized chunks could guaranteed transact even if you get rid of that premium.
0: This is a really good question that you're asking. So we went from let's say a premium for portfolios in like the in like the you know 2014 15 range then we went to a discount for portfolios in say 2016 17 18 19 and, and even 20 and 21 and then it swung back to being a premium for portfolios and that's why as i mentioned we were going to put a very large portfolio, but the market shifted really quick, and that premium went away really fast, hmm. and, and now really, it's a, it's a, in, our, in our opinion, it's a discount for portfolios today.
1: And One thing I think of with your shop is that you have a high volume of transactions, and the higher volume of transaction gives you the ability to know when to sell equally as when to buy, because your antenna are up for the data from both sides of that.
0: Yeah. The other thing, in addition to what you just said, Matt, is because we collect a lot of data from our debt investments
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the information that we are able to derive by, you know, not just the properties that we own, but the loans that we own, the mortgage bonds that we own really gives us tremendous real time information and and really helps us see some of the trends maybe maybe a little bit earlier than than some of our competitors.
1: Uh uh Okay, you're about to talk about 23.
0: So, you know, 2023, if I just turn the clock back only about three or four months, I will Mm -hmm. tell you, my glasses were pretty foggy. I really, really wasn't sure exactly what to expect because interest rates move so quickly. We've never seen happen before. We've seen interest rates go up even more than they have now, but not as quickly as it happened and really kind of threw the market into a shock. So if you had asked me four months ago and said, Jordan, great. You sold a lot of properties in 2022, but you know, what do you think you'll be able to do in 2023? I would have said, I don't know. We're going to be able to sell anything in 2023, but I'm pleased to say, actually, as I'm talking to you right now, we have uh, 11 properties that are currently uh, under agreement to be sold at, at, the pricing certainly has come down from where it was in, we look back a year ago, definitely has come down. Um, but particularly for properties that are, let's say less than a hundred million dollars, there's still a pretty good market out there of buyers for those types of, of properties. Of course, on the, on the acquisition side, we're being, we're being very disciplined, we're being very cautious. And I would expect that particularly in the first six months of this year, our investments of, on equity investments, so buying the actual real estate, mm-hmm. will be much less than it was in 2022. Mm-hmm. However, and this is one of the powers of our platform that we have such a diverse, broad platform, is it's really a good time to be a lender right now. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, a lot of the other lenders, particularly the banks, have really pulled in the horns so um, we're able to be pretty choosy and are able to do some pretty attractive debt investments right now.
1: Mm-hmm. Which keeps you in the market in a big way.
0: I also mentioned to you earlier in our conversation that Harbor Group also owns office buildings and buys office buildings. Most of the office buildings that we own are single tenant long-term lease office buildings to major companies like uh, be Amazon or Kaiser mm-hmm. Healthcare. Uh, Montefiore Hospital. But we do have some, a few multi-tenant office buildings, and we have not been very active um, over the last five years buying new multi-tenant office buildings. However, we are, and it's no secret, you pick up the Wall Street Journal uh, almost every day or any other public financial publication, and and office buildings have really been hurt. It's been mm-hmm. hurt hurt by COVID. They have not recovered, mm-hmm. and there's gonna be, there is, and there's gonna be a lot of pain in the office sector. Um, we've recently added a person to our team who has a lot of experience in the office acquisitions area, and uh, he is gonna be tasked with buying distressed Class A assets um, but I think that's really going to happen more so in the second six months of this year rather than the first six months of this
1: year. And let's talk about that for a few minutes. So you you, you made the comment you had foggy glasses, and I have no more fog than I could possibly have than <laughs> around the office space. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. You could be catching a falling knife. I don't know where stability falls out. Even a class to A building in distress is a good thing because then your price per pound is pretty good. But how do you have visibility into what that is? Multiple questions. How do you have visibility into what you think that's going to settle out to, say, in three, four, five years? And the second thing is, I'm thinking maybe because you're vertically integrated, but I don't know if you're vertically integrated in office, that gives you an advantage to be buying those because they're going to take a lot of work. Yeah.
0: Well, we are vertically integrated in the office sector as well. And we do make um, not through a multifamily credit fund, but we also do make debt investments in the office sector as well. But more specifically to your point, first of all, we do believe, and I'm sure there's a big debate about this, uh, maybe even you and I might even debate it, um, but we do believe that most companies, not all companies, but most companies you know, perform better when people are in the office when they have a chance to collaborate mm-hmm. and brainstorm ideas and go in and out of each other's offices when they need to. And also most important is mentoring, having the newer people be able uh, you know, to sit in on meetings. And we don't think it's the same over Zoom, but so we do believe that there is definitely the office product in general, the sector has a place. That being said, there is a lot, a lot of functionally obsolescent office buildings out there. And I'm pleased when I read about and I hear about that, talk about some of that stock being converted into residential. I mean, in my opinion, that's a win-win situation because, you know, we do need more housing and Mm -hmm. more affordable housing, and hopefully that that can help with it. But Our focus is really going to be kind of on the best, the the best of the best. And we think, and we're seeing it even within our own portfolio, we're seeing, you know, still strong fundamentals, uh, good leasing activity, but you have to have one of the best buildings in the market.
1: You probably do. And uh, this is going to be one of my last questions that I'm going to add to the final question on all my podcasts. What's your in the office policy right now?
0: Our policy is that we have all of our people in the office. We do we definitely have exceptions where we have some people that we hired for specific roles where they do not need to be in the mm-hmm. office. And they may be located in states where Harbor Group doesn't have an office. Right. But generally, our major offices, Norfolk, Virginia, of course, where our headquarters is, New York, we our office in New York. Um, in one of our office buildings uh, is uh, booming, our policy is that people should be in the office. People need, need to be in the office.
1: And does in the office mean five days? Yes. Got it.
0: That's correct. I know a lot of people have adopted a policy three days or four days or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and not Monday and Friday. But we believe it's just as important for people to collaborate and be mentored on a Monday or a Friday as it is on a Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday.
1: Cool. It's interesting. This is all going to settle out over the next number of years, and I think there's going to be one size will not fit all. So there's no doubt about that. That's
0: true. I agree with that.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because there will be a new normal, whether it's three days a week, five days a week, there won't be one size fits all. And then we'll have stability in what we're going to have in the office environment. We'll have stability back to downtown. And I hope that the urban fabric, the sandwich shops, the dry cleaners, all the services will return in a stable way so people can predict their incomes
0: boy i can't agree with you more on hoping that that's what happens <laughs> we need it to happen um uh for our urban core areas and many of the cities around the united states yeah. um and uh, so i i'm hoping that's going to happen and uh, you know again just to uh just to repeat myself i i think uh with the conversion of some of the office stock <laughs> into something else, whether it's residential or, or even in some cases, people are converting it into industrial, you know, logistics and storage. Um, But uh, I think that will absolutely help.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. And I think there's two conversions going to go on at the same time. So one is that conversion. The second is we're going to have to green up our buildings. So we have to decarbon some of these buildings. And then the cost of decarbonization, as well as the cost of a transition, maybe they happen at the same time, and that gives the excuse to make that investment happen no matter what.
0: I agree. And uh, we're certainly doing that with our buildings, and I completely agree with you.
1: Yeah. So one more question, while we're still slightly on the transaction place, is in 21, you did 5 Large portfolio acquisitions. And this is the dream for everyone in the business. So, how do you get a hold of those and how do you win those deals?
0: As I said, for many years, we've made portfolio transactions kind of a hallmark of Harbor Group's activities. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of experience with it. And I have to tell you, our team gets really juiced by the excitement of taking over a portfolio. You know, in 2020, when we bought what well, we currently called the sunbelt portfolio which was i believe it was 35 different assets and all across the sunbelt states um you know we took on uh, approximately 250 new employees on one day mm-hmm. on one day the teams went out ahead of time and they had to give orientations and talk about everything from health insurance to what our policies and procedures are closing the transaction, taking over the property management. We've got a great team of people. They've done it many, many, many times. Harbor Group does kind of a production line method. You know, this group specializes in the finance area and then the debt placement area. This, we have a legal department. I think we have, uh, last count, 11 in-house lawyers. We have marketing, websites, uh, obviously human resources. So we've got these various areas and they have really uh, fine-tuned their technique for these large portfolio transactions. We've just gotten really good at it and they've been some of our best investments as well.
1: Mm -hmm. So let's drive down into that from two perspectives. The first one is capital. So with those programmatic relationships that you have, someone wants to take this down in that way. And does it typically go into one investor or do you split that up among your multiple programmatic investments sometimes to make the deal work?
0: Yeah, it's split up amongst our programmatic investors. I will tell you in the transaction that we did in 2017, which was nearly $2 billion, the equity was around $500 million. We actually did not have a single institutional investor in that transaction. However, we had some very large family offices that we have programmatic relationships with. And these, I'm talking about super high net worth, Forbes 400 type family offices can write checks just as big as a lot of the institutions that can write. And so we were fortunate. And that again, that's worked out well for us. And you would think it might take longer to get transactions closed because of that, but it's the opposite we're able to move quicker than most that have to depend on the uh, institutions that, um, uh, you know, even, even people that have a fund, sometimes if they were doing a very large transaction, have to go to some of the key investors in the fund for their approval. So we're able to move very, very quickly often and that helps us win the deals.
1: Yeah, I think that ultra high net worth are wonderful and potentially easy investors and because they're entrusting you in a way that's different than an institution would entrust you. Yes, I agree with that. And are some of your ultra high net worth is you have a fair amount of Israeli money. Are these mostly in the states Israeli all over the world? What's the just composition of that for a second?
0: You know, we we have we do have an office in Israel and and we do have many Israeli institutional investors and family mm-hmm. offices, but it's actually funny because there's a little bit of a wrong impression that a lot of people have um, that they think that most of our money comes from Israel. It's not true. Most uh-huh. of our money comes from other places. Uh, we do have sig- a significant amount of equity that does come from our institutional relationships, and we have a, a small but really powerful uh, team in our Israel office. Does a great great job. Uh-huh. But we have investors all over the world. We have investors in Canada and investors in Korea and South America and Australia and Europe. And so Israel is not even close to being 50 percent of our equity. The biggest area for us in terms of our uh, equity comes from the United States. A lot of the family offices and wealth managers are are U.S. based.
1: Mm -hmm. But they're big chunk wealth managers. You're not talking uh, the wirehouse, $100,000 stuff. You're talking ultra high net worth with big chunks that let you do these things that we're talking about. Correct. Okay, let's go to second subject, which is your business platform. And so we've been talking a whole lot about transactions and what the transaction means. And one of my theories about the real estate world is that the business platform is what makes investors, what differentiates companies in the long run. And the person who introduced us, David Stamford from Real Foundations, has the same belief. He's been on my podcast. We've talked about all this, but talk about your business platform that lets you take over these portfolios. This sounds like what Equity Residential did in the years when it was bulking up at the, in the olden days. So what talk about the business platform and both vertical integration as well as the departments that let you know how to do this?
0: Well, first of all, any successful organization that's in the investment business and including the real estate investment business starts with the people. And one of the things I, I, I have to say, and maybe it should have been one of the very first things I said, but we have an amazing team. You know, many of the people at, at Harbor group. I mean, they're just amazing. And they've been at Harbor group for a long time. The top 10 executives, at Harbor Group have an average tenure with Harbor Group of of 15 years. Mm. Robert Friedman, who's president of our management company, has been at Harbor Group for 30 years. We've got an amazing team, very, very talented. We're adding to that talent all the time. But uh, you know, getting back to the platform, that's the first and foremost, it's about the people. Mm-hmm. The second thing I will say again, I said it a little earlier, Matt, was the breadth of our broad platform that we have in terms of being able to do debt investments, being able to do equity investments, be able to do equity investments for multifamily, being able to do equity investments for for office. We recently closed at the end of 2022 a very big mezzanine loan on on a new construction of a medical office building in Manhattan. So We do a lot of different things. I didn't even mention Harbor Group also has a hedge fund. We have a group that runs a little bit more than half a billion dollars that invests exclusively in publicly traded securities. Mm -hmm. It's part of our overall uh, thesis that by being able to be in every part in the capital stack within the real estate investment industry helps us to... Be smarter investors. We're able to gather information and from the various verticals, and use that information to be smarter, better investors. Um, you know, again, our hedge fund invests in publicly traded companies such as REITs, real estate operating companies, anything to do with real estate. Could be banks. It could be home builders, even service companies like brokerage firms that mm-hmm. are publicly traded things that are real estate related that are publicly traded, but that's a, you know, that's another vertical within our platform. So we do have these various verticals and and it's, it's just a, I'm thrilled that we, that we have all these verticals because we can be disciplined investors. If it's not the right time to, to do this, then let's focus over here. And if this isn't the right thing to do at this time, and we can get a better return on allocating uh, our dollars to a different area, um, like like now is a good, I mentioned earlier, now's a, a good example where it's a great time to be a lender. So we're putting a lot of emphasis in that area.
1: Yeah. And how does the, it's interesting. If I think of verticals, I'll use a different word for verticals as silos. So how do you take silos and turn multiple silos into wisdom at the top and then get that wisdom pushed down?
0: Well, you have you have uh, meetings, you learn to share information, if I see an article or I learn something, uh, or I'm in an investment committee for our our apartments and I'm learning certain trends, um, I can take that information and give it to another vertical. And and hopefully they can benefit by learning from that information. So uh, it's, I think we're good at, as a company, we're very good at sharing information. Always when I'm interviewing a potential executive with the team, I always talk about how we're kind of walking in and out of each other's offices all the time. We're constantly brainstorming and sharing information and ideas. And I think that's very powerful.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It probably gets back to some degree to the the conversation about being in the office five days a week, because it's it's in the conversations and it's, uh, people say the water cooler, I don't know about the water cooler, but if all that information is being shared among your teams who are in and out of each of those different markets in those different ways, then you can have wisdom and you know how to transact better. Exactly. And, exactly. and two other comments about this. One is, how does it help, or I guess it has to help because you do it, to have vertically integrated property management?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I I think it helps a lot. We We count on our property management company so much for not only their knowledge, but their talent and capabilities. And there's a lot of good property management companies out there, there mm-hmm. really are. And uh, there's different models. Sometimes I I think about some of uh, my friends who have four people working in the company and everything's outsourced. There's a few times that I'm envious. Harbor Group has today 1,500 employees, and it's a lot of responsibility. Mm-hmm. but. I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade it because I do think gives us, you know, a little bit of an edge being kind of, as they say, where the rubber hits the road and property management is where the rubber hits the road when it comes to the real estate investment business.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. There's no right and wrong answer to it. And so the debate, as you said, is all the time. And you could be jealous of your friend with four people in the office just <laughs> doing deals. Um, that's right. And you can get pride around running an organization, leading or having you know having this team together, but that's not what you're describing. So pride's one thing, but then also the benefits are the most important part.
0: Matt, something else just occurred to me. Um, I actually had this conversation just this earlier this week with someone that you you also need a certain size organization to have economies of scale. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe that somebody who is let's say managing three four five six thousand units really can afford to get the the best systems the best people you have to be of a certain size to get the economies of scale to be able to have all the latest and greatest things and tools and uh, um, and to be able to, most importantly to be able to hire really the the best and the brightest people.
1: Was there anything from the discipline of doing multifamily up and down the stack and being vertically integrated in multifamily that when you both went into debt and then also did commercial properties that brought you a perspective on how to attack those businesses?
0: Well, certainly as we went into debt investments and multifamily, we underwrite each and every one of our debt investments, borrowers give us their projections, but we do our own underwriting. Right. So somebody could have an NOI that shows uh, $2 million a year and our underwriting might show it's $1.7 million a year. And when we do our tests, our debt service coverages, our debt yields, it's really you know based on under, our underwriting. And I think that having not just from sitting behind the desk, let's say like a banker would, but mm-hmm. having you know, the real facts and figures from our own property management company, and as I said, from our other debt investments, and then being able to input that into our, uh, our underwriting, I think makes a, makes a big difference. I think it makes for a better underwriting.
1: Yeah, of course. And let's now go back with a little bit of history. And I want to wind up with the question that I'm, about Norfolk, because I just find it fascinating. Yeah. Most of the people we deal with are from one of the major, ma- major towns in the country. So talk about the sale of the family business, and then jumping into the multifamily management business, and then kind of the, the, the stages of growth of your company okay. and the surprises along the way.
0: Yeah, even before I got into the real estate business. I grew up in a family manufacturing business. So the one thing that gave me a bit of advantage is that I had some financial wherewithal from the proceeds of the sale of our family manufacturing business. Yeah. Now, what did I do with those proceeds? What I did with those proceeds was I invested in people. I hired people that most little companies that were starting off, would not have been able to afford to hire. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there's a name, I don't know if it means anything to you that goes way back, but there was a big multifamily develop, uh operator called Oxford, yeah. And so I hired one of the senior property management people for Oxford, we were a company, I don't even know if we had a 1000 units under management. But mm-hmm. so again, most most people that have a small company starting out would not have been able to afford to hire somebody like that. And because I did not have years and years of experience and background, I had experience and I had a background, but it wasn't necessarily in the apartment property management business. So I was able to hire those people. And even to this day, to this day, that's one of the things that's probably the most important thing to me is to hire the best and the brightest that we can get
1: hmm I, I, I guess that there's two sides to this comment that you made. One is that you hired the best people. The second is that you had the benefit of goals and objectives. You didn't think small, you thought big, and you knew that you could. You had the wherewithal financially and intellectually and then desire.
0: Correct, correct. I mean, it's always been my goal to grow, but it wasn't about being the biggest. But it, I, I always, and everything how I approach it, and, and you know, I believe if uh, if I were starting up a business that is unrelated to real estate, completely unrelated to real estate, I would still approach it the same way, and it's, and it, and it's building a team, finding people who have, who complement you, who have talents that I don't have, and who can do things better than I could do, and then surrounding yourself with those types of people mm-hmm. and really look at building a good product. That's really the key.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. Let me pick back at that. Cause it's, you, you say something really important for our listeners and a lot of people hire behind their curve instead of ahead of their curve, they right. hire for who they are today and yesterday, and they don't aspire to who they're going to be tomorrow So they hire weak instead of hire strong. And I'm also guessing that being in Norfolk, which I keep picking on, would make that even easier to hire weaker than stronger and harder to hire stronger. But you still went there.
0: Yeah, but but I will tell you, though, Matt, as we got bigger, it became an insurmountable challenge. Uh, to try to bring everybody to Norfolk. You know, I'll right. just tell you quickly, I'd get a resume for, from somebody, they'd come in from, let's say, Dallas, they'd spend the day, they'd spend a the day with a real estate agent looking at houses in the area, they'd spend a the day meeting the other people at Harbor Group, and they then they'd come back to me and they'd say, Jordan, I can't take the job. I'm like, why? What happened? And they'd say, listen, I, I love the company's story, I love the people that you have. I drove around and I... I, I really like the area, but there's one problem is that if for some reason it doesn't work out at Harbor Group, there's no other companies like Harbor Group in North Virginia. Right. So we decided that if we couldn't get them to come to us, we had to go to them. And that's when we, in, in the year 2000, we opened up an office in New York. And that has been, you know, our fastest growing office uh, by far, you know, over the years. We have a small team of people in LA, we have a small team of people in Baltimore, we have a small team of people in Dallas. A lot of the areas of the company, really, they they don't need to be in Norfolk. I mean, in fact, we don't have a single transactions officer in our Norfolk office. Those folks are all uh, either in our Baltimore, New York, or Los Angeles offices. At the beginning, it was We could accomplish getting people to move to Norfolk, but then we just got too big, and the type of talent that we needed. Another one of my sayings is that I get excited about buildings that we buy, but after about five minutes, the excitement, you know, it wears off, and let's go on to the next, uh, the next investment. But one thing that never wears off for me, and that's the people. Um, I don't talk to my wife a lot about my business, uh, but when we do. When I find somebody a really new great addition for the Harbor Group team, I I come home and I tell her, and I'm just so excited when we make a a really great new hire, because that's really how we're going to be able to continue to evolve as a company.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So let me ask a question, what you get to talk to your wife about. If you talk about increasing the NOI of a building over time, your pride in increasing the NOI of a building versus your pride in creating the career and growing the career and mentoring someone
0: So if I talk about the growing the NOI of a building if I talk about that with my wife I'll put her to sleep <laughs> but uh, she actually does take an interest when I talk to her about some of the really uh, senior people that we're looking to bring on board and you know oftentimes she'll she'll ask me questions about them even sometimes look over the resumes but you know that's really what keeps me what keeps me excited because I know that if we bring in the right talent the right people that, that then Harvard Group really have a bright future.
1: Yeah. And it look, I'm a recruiter, so and we've done work together, but it's been a while, so we have to we have to rectify that. But but <laughs> I do believe that it's the people on the platform that makes that world go round and that is what's going to sustain itself. Your properties are going to come in and out of the portfolio over time. That's right. And the people that you grow. So you have wonderful people, you have wonderful structure. How do they knit together? How do you create the culture that pulls them together to sustain and what becomes after one day you're not there?
0: You said a word that really hit a sensitivity with me, and that word was culture, because it it reminded me that I forgot to mention something when we were talking about having people come back to the office. Mm -hmm. I'm sure people can do it, but I have no idea how people can build a company culture with everybody working from home. Mm -hmm. Now, there might be there's certain industries where that is possible, but I don't see how it can be done in our industry. And culture is so, so important. Building a good culture where everybody feels like they are moving in the same direction, they're part of a group. And when, another thing we do at Har is when we're looking to hire somebody, we have the senior people talk to this person. And if we feel like they're just not going to fit into the chemistry of the company or if they're a prima donna, we feel like you know, a prima donna can become like a cancer. Somebody comes in and they think the whole reason that the company is successful is is mainly because of them. Mm -hmm. That's not the type of person that we want at Harbor Group. So culture is so, so important. Not every company can have uh, similar cultures, and that's okay, but it really is so important.
1: Everyone says that. I haven't talked to a single person, 150 episodes of Leading Voices, who would not say culture is paramount, and some of them come from companies with lousy cultures, to be honest with you. Yeah.
0: I mean, another thing that come that is part of culture is integrity. Mm-hmm. One of the things I tell when I mentor younger people, and particularly people who are, let's say, have their own businesses or the CEOs of companies, it's really, when you go home at night and you have the weight of the world on your shoulders by yourself... Mm-hmm. That's not good. It's not good. And to be able to share that weight amongst many people Mm -hmm. and amongst many people's shoulders, particularly when everybody's on the same page from an integrity standpoint, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, if there's something, a decision needs to be made about how to, what to do, how to do, and sometimes it's not very pleasant. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people will say, you know, maybe maybe we can get away with this or we can get away with that and not do this or not do that. Mm -hmm. But when everybody says, Nope, let's do the stand-up thing. It might be, it might be painful, but this is the right thing to do. And when everybody's on the same page, it's a really good feeling.
1: Yeah. Any comments on what is anti-culture?
0: I mentioned the biggest one that I have seen before in businesses is when you have somebody on the team who feels like they're, Above everybody yeah. else, and when they think that, like, if they were to leave, the whole company's going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. That's a cancer. That's a that's a cancerous situation. Not pleasant. You'll re- drive people away from your company. Mm-hmm. Um, not going to mention the position, but we recently had a position open, and two very very talented people. And at the end of the day, I said to the senior other senior executives, I said. If we hire this person, you guys are never going to get along with them. <laughs> and I can just tell it. And we obviously made the decision. It was the right decision to to go with the person that we felt would fit into the chemistry of the company very well.
1: Yeah, must be protected. And interesting, one of the things we talk about all the time on Leading Voices and one of my bite lines is that it's a long game. And it, yeah. the culture doesn't respect the long game in how you treat internally, but also how you exhibit yourself in the marketplace, then I think you're in trouble. So last question on leading voices is always uh, your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business.
0: My advice to young people that are getting into the real estate business, a couple of things come to mind. First of all, find a mentor. Find somebody who has very high integrity level that you can go to with questions. Not necessarily questions about how to go about your job, but really more big picture questions, how to act, how to act in certain situations. Somebody has experience um, having been around before. So having a good mentor is really important, and I would stress the importance of uh, having a mentor who is of the highest integrity. Mm Number two, a question that I get, I would say the number one question that I get from young people is, am I better off trying to get a lower entry level job at a big company, or would I be better off working at a small company where I can be closer to the top executive and really see what's going on? And it's a tough question to answer, but I would say having the training that comes from working at a a large company that has spent years developing processes and procedures can be really really helpful and then after you have that training if you want to actually go back to a smaller company that's fine and that might be a good decision and might be a way to advance a person's career you know faster but I think starting off with really the proper training that sometimes is hard to get at a small company is is really important.
1: I think it's really interesting advice. I tell people there's no right answer to that question. It's totally situational because you do get a breadth of experience at a small company. You'll wear three different hats instead of be siloed into one hat where you're right. going to get the training. But the training right. totally matters. I call it the playbook and to get that yeah. playbook from a wonderful company that knows what they're doing is and then also having the alumni club from that wonderful company I
0: That's right. Then you could go back and you could work at a smaller company or a mid-sized company and 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 hopefully advance your career, you know, maybe maybe at a at a faster pace than if you had stayed at the big company maybe. I don't know. Some it really depends. But I do think the training of working at a big company is important.
1: Yeah, absolutely true. Hey, Jordan, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. We've learned a lot about you, a lot about Harbor Group International and your success, and congratulations on that. And I look forward to continuing the conversations.
0: Well, Matt, I actually enjoyed it as well. It was great talking to you. Thank you for having me today.
1: I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them and add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leading voices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate, human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at crgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices.